If you missed last week, which I know we had, Collective had their fall retreat, which I heard went really well, but many of you were out last week. We began our new sermon series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we made it through the first nine verses, which is Paul's greeting, his, his thanksgiving, which is very um, common for Paul to start his letters in that way. Um, so that's where we were last week. For context, I'm going to read that passage again. And then this morning, we want to spend the rest of our time in the remainder of chapter 1. So let's read 1 Corinthians together. Verse 1 says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into this fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and have the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the sermon of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. God, you are so kind to call us out of darkness, that you've chosen us, us who were not wise according to worldly standards. Not many of us were powerful or from noble birth, but Lord, you've chosen us. And Lord, I pray that as a chosen people, we would see the beauty of that and and how that should unite us together, that there'd be no divisions among us. So I pray that we'd be a unified body today. I pray, Lord, that we would be overwhelmed of this gospel, that you have chosen something like the cross to radically change the world. So give us the ears to hear from you this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I, I love how this letter starts out. It starts out a lot like Paul's other letters. The, the difference for me with this one is knowing who he's writing to. Like this church, it's a, it's a very immature, it's a very messed up church. And so the way he starts this letter, it's similar to how he starts Philippians, but the church of Philippi, it was a pretty good church. Here, this is just beautiful. I mean, think about this. Like what if someone told you, about a church that you deeply cared about, that you maybe previously, maybe you're on staff with that church, or maybe you just attended for a long time, maybe you helped get it started. And and if that person told you that that church had some major immature divisions in it, that that there was a a member in that church who was having an affair with a stepmom, if if I told you that that church had members who were suing other members and taking them to court, that divorce and remarriage is, is running rampant, that other members were abusing spiritual gifts, that you had people getting drunk off the Lord's Supper, and that there are people in this church that, that didn't believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that report was given to you, if, if you received that church that you deeply cared about, what type of letter would you have written them? Now, here's 16 chapters, and Paul starts out with things like, like you're guiltless in the day of Christ. Uh, and just this beautiful, beautiful language, things, how he's thankful for them. If we're honest, um, our letter would probably have been 16 chapters. It would probably have been much shorter. It may have sounded something like this. Paul called to be an apostle by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. Stop it right now. You're gross. Repent. Apologize to one another. Change your ways. And I might find it in my heart to talk to you again next winter. Grace be with you all. Amen. (laughs) Paul's tone is not that at all, though. He's tremendous, like, like you just see so much patience and concern for this church. Now, there's definite moments of frustration throughout this letter, but he handles himself more as a parent. He, he confronts, but he confronts like he's, he's showing love and compassion towards this church. 
where we pick up this morning is we pick up with the body. So we saw the greeting, the thanksgiving. Now the body starts in verse 10. And he starts the body. The very first thing he says to them is, is this, he makes this appeal in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul makes an appeal to the Corinthian church. This is an appeal. It's not as strong as a command. He's not commanding, but it's much stronger than a suggestion. He's appealing to them by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. His point here is that this isn't just some mere suggestion from Paul, but this is a correction from Christ himself. His appeal in verse 10 was for the Corinthians to agree. Now, depending on what version you're looking at um, in your hands, it, it, it may not say the word agree. It may say something like to speak the same things. So here are three ways that Paul says here right in this section Paul makes this appeal for the church to be united, have the same speech, have the same mind, and have the same judgment. So the command here is to have no divisions among you. I want you to think about this church at Corinth. How in the world is a church full of different personalities, different cultures, different backgrounds, how are they supposed to have the same Speech, the same mind, and same judgment. I mean, our church isn't anywhere as near diverse as the church at Corinth. And it seems like just this is impossible for us, to have the same speech, same mind, same judgment. So what is Paul getting at? Well, I, last, this past Friday night, we, we had a listening night, a panel discussion um, it was great. We had five panelists up here. The topic was race, and they all come, these five individuals come from different um, minority backgrounds. It was so good and helpful for me. There were several things said Friday night that have challenged me, and my mind is like being sharpened when it comes to the topic of race. But one thing that I quickly noticed, and I don't know how many of you were here Friday night that caught this, and I, I love this that even though these five individuals come from different race, they still come from a lot of the same similar background. All five, for most of their life, were raised in West Virginia. Um, so they have similar, like, culture. Um, but what I loved is that even they disagreed with each other. I don't know if you caught that. Even Jay, who was kind of moderating, made the point of that. Now, I want you to think about Corinth. Corinth would be more like New York and L.A., not like Huntington, okay? So bigger cities track many different cultures, different worldviews than like here in Huntington. So how is the church at Corinth going to be united in the same mind and judgment? Is Paul just setting them up for failure? I mean, here we are, you know, as we saw, just even these five, not even the whole church, but even these five couldn't agree exactly the same. So what does Paul mean by agree? Well, he's not talking about things like musical styles. He, he doesn't think everyone in the church should have the same judgment for art and music, those things. How do I know this? Well, he doesn't bring those up in the next 16 chapters. But what he does bring up are primary doctrines that this church in Corinth are not agreeing on. And so things like division in the church, 
In chapter 1, we see the first division. This church had divisions over who was the most important leader. There was, there was divisions. Paul also addresses things like sexual morality, things like church discipline, litigation, divorce, remarriage, spiritual gifts, people getting drunk, um, the resurrection. Paul is saying, when we're talking about the resurrection, everyone, every one of the members here, we should agree that Jesus physically rose from the dead. There should be differences on that. We can differ on other things. The last sermon series, I preached through Revelation. I said, we're going to have differences in this. But what we can't disagree on Revelation is that the Lord's returning. He's coming back. We need to all agree on that as Christians. But how it all plays out, there's some room there to, to disagree. So Paul, is, he's using this letter to show the church that these are some things that you should all agree on. That in these issues, there should be no divisions among you. We shouldn't have like, well, we believe, this side of the church believes that Christ didn't physically raise from the dead. This side does. No, there, there's not. We, we all are going to agree on this. This is what we're going to preach and hold to. So Paul begins to address these divisions in the very next verse, verse 11. Verse 11 says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, quarreling, it's, it's typically an argument over trivial things that people who genuinely get along, they're not in this moment. So it could be like a husband and wife um, maybe disagreeing. My wife isn't here. So, oh, she's watching. Ah, could be a difference of how maybe somebody does the dishes, um, where it's really not a big deal, but you have a difference. So there's quarreling going on. So a report has come back to Paul from Chloe's people. Isn't that interesting? Chloe's people about quarreling in the Corinthian church. Interesting phrase. Chloe's people. This is the only time we see the name Chloe in New Testament. So we don't really know anything about her other than that she has some people. And maybe, depending on what translation you're reading from, it might not even say Chloe's people. It might say something like the household of Chloe. So here's this. These are a group of people that maybe, we don't really know this, but these could be the people carrying these Corinthian letters back and forth to Corinth, to Paul, Paul to Corinth. We don't know that, but it could be the case. So as they're going back and forth with these letters, potentially, they bring this message about what they're hearing at the church. And what they're hearing is not good. Uh, if someone here um, hears something or experiences something, uh, maybe where someone's sinning against them, most of the time what happens is that offended party goes to someone else and they first explain, and maybe probably better identified as gossips, about that situation. That's usually how it's handled. Matthew 18 encourages us. Jesus shows us how this should be handled. So I want to encourage you all to read Matthew 18 this week at some point, specifically 15, verses 15 through 20. It shows us Jesus is teaching us how we should handle conflict. Once we get to chapter 5, which is a a huge ordeal in this church. Chapter 5 is weird and strange and gross. But when we get to that chapter, I will then go through Matthew 18. But this morning, I just want to bring it up. 
Because I often hear reports, like we have Chloe people too, like I often hear reports about other things. So what I don't get, I don't get Chloe's people coming to me. I get the people who Chloe talked to, they will come to me and say, hey, Chloe told me this about someone else. I'm like, and, and, and what I want our church to be trained, to be able to do is when Chloe's people comes to you, you say, hey, what did, what did that person say when you went to them? The, you know, whoever calls the offense. Because that's what I'm going to, when you come to me with, could be information or gossip, I'm going to say, hey, what did that person say when you confronted them with it? And usually you'll get, well, I didn't go to them. You need to go back to them. We want to keep this small. We don't want to spread things. So here, things have spread. There's divisions. Um, Paul explains in verse 12 what exactly had been reported to him from Chloe's people. Look down at verse 12. What I mean is that one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So apparently the church began to divide over which leader was best, which we have to stop this all the time. Like, I know, like, you guys fight over which elder is your favorite. You know, you, I love Jay. I love Bruce. I love Adam. You know, I'm, I'm kidding, because none of you, like, you all like our wives better than us anyways. So, but here, this church, they're dividing over who these leaders are. Now, the background on Paul, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth. So I'm, I'm sure that a guy like Paul, he had a, probably a huge following in this church, people who love Paul. He had been gone for three years. So in that three-year time, you know, other people had come in, men maybe like Apollos and maybe Cephas. Um, and so other people have come in. New people have come into the church. So these new people, they didn't know Paul. So they're going to maybe be more drawn to Apollos and Cephas. Apollos... Um, we meet him in Acts 18. In Acts 18, Apollos was someone who was considered to be a brilliant Jewish scholar, a skilled preacher from Alexandria. In Acts 19, he comes to Corinth. So we know he's there. It says in Acts 19 that he finds some disciples. So Apollos seems to have been a much more skilled preacher than Paul. So it makes sense why some people maybe be drawn more towards towards uh, Apollos. He's far more dynamic. Then you have Cephas, which you might not recognize that name, but this is the Aramaic name for Peter. This is the rock, one of the main disciples of Jesus, one of the main leaders of the early church. So you can imagine some of the Jewish Christians here at Corinth really being drawn to Peter. I mean, this is Peter. I mean, he's got illustrations that no other preacher has. I mean, he walked with Jesus. I mean, he could literally say, uh, you know, it's like that time um, when Jesus took us out. Like, I can never say that. That's not fair that Peter can just give you actual personal firsthand stories of him being with Jesus. So you could imagine why people would, would be drawn towards Peter. But then lastly, we see that there are other members that say they belong to Christ. Well, this seems like this is the right choice. 
But we don't know why there's this fourth category here. Um, we don't know if this is a wrong view of people following Christ as well or, or if this is really just the correct category. It's not very clear from the way it's written. So Paul begins to ask these series of rhetorical questions. He says, is Christ divided? Is Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? You know, each question would be answered with this big, emphatic, no, of course Christ isn't divided. Christ is one with his Father. Of course Paul didn't, um, he wasn't crucified for you. Paul dying for you would just be a kind gesture. His death would have never settled the wrath of God. Paul's blood could not atone for your sins. Of course you were not baptized in the name of Paul. Have you ever seen a baptism done in the name of Paul? Of course not. We, we've never done one. I think it'd be kind of silly. I'm going to welcome you into the church, baptize you in the name of Paul. This doesn't sound powerful at all, does it? I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So then Paul gives this, he gives them the count on his baptisms. He says that, verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. You can imagine the original audience, Crispus and Gaius are like, hey, as us. We made the letter. And then, and then he says, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Like he, he's like, don't fight over who's baptizing you. That's not what this is about. And then I love verse 16. I did, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. It's like Paul was thankful that, that he had not baptized anyone except these two guys. But then it's almost like Sothenes, the guy who's with him in verse 1. Um, writing this letter. It's like he's reading the letter over Paul's shoulder as Paul's writing. He's like, he's like this parathetical statement is like filling in this gaps of this conversation. Like, Sothenes is like, wait, wait, wait. Didn't you baptize Stephanus' family? Oh, I did. That's right. So he, he adds this, and then, then like at the end, he classic Pauline fashion says, he makes this blanket statement of, beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. Uh, it's, it's, it's like he's just like, I am getting old and forgetful. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Because you know there's some guy in that church who was baptized by Paul. When he hears Crispus and Gaius, and if it was just that, he's like, dude, what about me? I, I, I'm one of the ones saying I follow you. I'm changing my mind. I'm now following Apollos. He would never forget me. And so Paul just says, I've maybe forgotten anyone else, just blanket statement. The point Paul is trying to make here is that baptizing people was never his calling. Yes, he did it, but that was not his calling. He says that, that was not what he came to do, and he transitions in verse 17 to speak of what he did come to do. Look at 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but... To preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is not belittling baptism here. Baptism is one of the two ordinances left for the church to administer. But rather, Paul's focus here is on the preaching of the cross as this great divine contradiction to our human ways of doing things. So if you remember, Apollos was introduced in Acts 18 as this eloquent man, Competent scriptures, just this dynamic communicator. Uh, and so Paul says he was called to preach the gospel, but not with words of eloquent wisdom. I, I love how he phrases that. 
It's almost like he's drawing a difference between him and Apollos. Like, hey, I, I, I know Apollos is a much more gifted preacher than I am. But that's okay. It's not Apollos. It's not by the power of Apollos. It's not by the power of Paul that's saving anyone. It's the power of the cross. So Paul says, he preaches the gospel, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Not the power of Apollos or Peter. The cross of Christ, it's such an interesting phrase. I mean, think about a cross. I mean, it's so hard for any one of us to really think about a cross without thinking a religious symbol. But that was not what the cross was. Um, the Roman cross was supposed to mean Roma victor. That's what people thought of. It was, it was a tool to not only punish criminals, but it was to frighten anyone that wanted to come against Rome. It was to in intimidate you. You would see somebody being crucified, and you're like, I don't want any part of that. What did he do? I'm going to make sure I'm not doing that. And so for centuries, the cross was a weapon of death, but today... Many of us use the cross as a decoration. You ever thought about that? You realize how strange this is? Like no one decorates um, with electric chairs or lethal injection needles. But it's perfectly normal, or better yet, beautiful when you see the cross. Why? Because it's not just any cross. It's the cross of Christ. Like some of you this morning may have an instrument used for the death penalty around your neck. You're like, oh, that's, that's a nice cross. Depends on which side of the cross you're looking at. The cross no longer means Roma Victor, but is better known to mean Christus Victor. That this crucified criminal has become the most admired, uh, most worshipped figure in human history. And as Paul confronts in chapter 15, Jesus not only physically died on the cross, but he physically was raised from the dead. He's alive today. The resurrection is true. In verse 18, Paul elaborates on this foolishness of the cross, how silly it is. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the sermon of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So we, we see this contrast here in this section. Contrast between weakness and foolishness and power and wisdom. When Paul's using the word wisdom, it could mean more than just intellectual pursuit. Uh, it could be a way for him to capture what we would call maybe like worldview. The cross of Christ makes absolutely no sense to the Jew or to the Greek. So Paul, being Jewish, knew that the cross, it was a stumbling block 
to the Jews. When you're reading the Gospels and you see all this great following, of, you know, all these Jews following Jesus, what they wanted were signs. You know, Jesus, do this sign. You know, they love when he turned the bread, you know, when multiplied the bread. They, they love, do it again, do it again. We want to see it. What they were looking for was this Messiah to come and like all these signs would like affirm that he was the Messiah. It would justify him. So they wanted signs. The Greeks, they made, they made much of wisdom. Um, maybe like today how maybe we make much of like science or reason. That was kind of wisdom. So in that world, Paul says, like, our message is absolutely ridiculous. That you are saved because this man died on a cross. You know, according to science or wisdom, well, that's, that's stupid. No, you're not. According to signs, like, you know, the Jew would look at that and go, why would God die on a cross? God, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah was supposed to come in and conquer Rome and set up, you know, establish his kingdom like King David. He wouldn't die on a cross. Show us a greater sign. You ever thought about it? Like, the message that saves us. Paul says it's a foolish message. It's, it, it's, it's one that, you know, you, you look upon a guy who's dead on a cross, claims to be God, claims to have risen again. You put your trust in that, and you're safe forever. You know, that's why some of you are still in college, you're in, in your science class, you say that, some of your professors, some of your peers, and they're like, well, that's ridiculous. Like, why would, why would that save you? See, salvation from a man's point of view would be like, you got to work harder, do better. God says, no, just look to the cross. It's not about doing better. It's about trusting what I've done for you already. So this whole idea of a crucified Messiah it, it just, it's foolishness to man. And what I love about this is that no one in their right mind would have ever dreamed up God's plan for redemption. You know, none of us would have, you're like, okay, how are we going to save the world? None of us would have come up with, let's send God to die on the cross. That wouldn't have been our plan. It's too absurd. It's too humiliating. But only God is so wise to be so foolish. This is what Paul is trying to communicate in verse 23 following. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Yet when this foolish message is heard by people whom God has called, whether Jews or Gentiles, it turns out to be both God's power and his wisdom working in them. Verse 26, Paul, now he invites this church at Corinth to look around at each other. He's saying, look, look, at, each, look at yourselves. Look what God's doing in you. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is incredible. You know, some of those original readers in, in that church at Corinth, as someone's reading this letter to them, they, they can actually probably hear Paul's voice. You know, especially those that would say they follow Paul. They love Paul. They're hearing, their vo- hearing Paul's voice. And Paul asked them to consider their calling. He reminds them that not many were wise, not many were powerful. So imagine being that original audience hearing Paul saying that about you. Um, and you might be one that's considered, you know, that I'm following Paul. And here, Paul is now, he's taking these personal shots. Maybe you think, you know, God has done a great thing by saving you because um, you're so special. And Paul's saying, well, not many of you were wise. Not many of you were very powerful. So here, Paul's taking some shots at some of these people. Um, but he's trying to get this Corinthian church to realize their very existence is foolish. Like the idea that this church is collecting together, melting pot of cultures. He's saying to the world, it's foolishness. So look at yourselves. When you became believers, you weren't of power. You weren't of great wealth. But God saved you anyways. He took hold of what was weak, what was shameful, what was vulnerable, the poor, the poorly educated. And he turned that church and us today into demonstrations of his transforming grace and mercies. One author writes this about this idea. Um, He says this, speaking to us Christians. He says, you were foolish people who heard a foolish message preached in a foolish way. I love that. Like, we were foolish people who heard a foolish message preached in a foolish way. And God has demonstrated his wisdom in you so powerfully that the smartest people on earth left scratching their heads and wondering how he did it. I love that quote. So if you're going to boast about anything this morning, you should boast in the Lord. Did did you notice how in God's own wisdom, he has left us out of the planning meeting on how salvation should be started? You weren't invited to that meeting because we wouldn't have done it this way. So how does Paul connect divisions in the church and the cross of Christ? Like, why are these two things side by side? Well, divisions and quarreling usually come from individuals or groups thinking too highly of themselves. So when others think differently from you, then there are these divides, and we divide from fellowship and with that group or individual because, you know, you know best. Um, you know, they're not educated or enlightened or woke enough today for us, okay? So Paul uses the cross here to show us that none of us should think too highly of ourselves. We should have a low view of mankind. The Bible, when you read it, has a low view of mankind. Um, 
Now, some of us struggle with that idea that mankind, that we should have like this low view of mankind. And some of you, when you come to me, you'll, you'll say things like, um, and I just really don't want you to be disappointed in me or change your view of me. And I'll just say, you know what, I, I won't. They don't get what I mean. My, what I mean is I have a low view of mankind. We're all going to make mistakes and sin. So when you think like, I don't want to share something with your, with your pastors because your pastors might think less of you, it's not the case. We think everybody is going to mess up at some point or another. You know why we think that? Because we as pastors do the same thing. I'm a sinner. Why do I think like you're not going to sin too? Like we all fall short. That's why we're talking about the cross this morning. That's why Christ had to come. So when you're looking at this, many of us, we get so excited about the first half of verse 27 and 28 without realizing what Paul was saying about you in the latter half of those verses. So verse 27 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. See, we love hearing that God has chosen us. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? God, God has chosen you. Don't you feel so loved and wanted, desired? It's great to be chosen. But for some of you, when you hear the word chosen, some of you, that, that concept might take you all the way back to middle school gym class where everybody's like lined up on the wall and two special anointed people are out here deciding the future of all of you sorry people. And so, you know, they're making their picks. And when they call out your name, you're like, hey, I got picked. You're, were you ever picked first? Now you're like, look at me. I'm the man. I got picked first. Have you ever been the last two on the wall? It's not so fun, is it? You're the last two standing there, and you're just like, oh, man, please call out my name. I don't want to be the other guy. So you're like, I just want to get picked. So then that one person, you know, you have the last two, the one gets picked. The other, he's still put on a team, right? But you're not picked whatsoever. You're just like, it's like by fault, by default. Like you're just, you're just put on a team. You're not chosen for the team. It's like the worst feeling ever. But here, God is like, he's, he's choosing you. Um, God chose you. He desired to be with you. He selected you. You weren't just someone who was left. You were loved. But before you start thinking like you're some first-round selection, the second half of these verses humble us with reality. See, what's happening is, is like God is choosing. We're making much of him. But the beauty of this is it's more like if, if Michael Jordan in his prime is here and I'm the other captain, okay? And Jordan's like, won't you just go and take the first four picks? Now, let me just say, as I look around this room, I get a little more excited than the first service, okay? I don't know if the first service is watching, probably not, but weren't a lot of ball players in the first service. So I feel a little bit better, this, this group. And then Jordan says, won't you just go ahead and pick, pick my four players too? So I'm picking... 
the first service, right? I think people from the first service to give the Jordan. Now, we all know Jordan and the four people from the first service are still going to beat our best five. And he wants that. Why? Because when he beats us 10 to 0, all right, maybe 10 to 1, we got lucky and scored one. 10 to 1, at the end of that, we're going to... We're not going to make much of this team. We're not going to boast about how great Jordan's team is. We're going to boast about how great Jordan is. Because we know that everything there was all because of him. That's what's happening here. See, this is why this is such a beautiful story. This is, God chose you, but you were foolish. You were the weak. You were the low and despised. God chose you for a purpose. To preach the gospel to a world who believes your life is foolish. Some of you have family members, you have friends who think, you're nuts for believing this story that Jesus died on the cross. It's insane. Why do you believe that? Why are you wasting your Sunday morning? God has called you to preach this foolish message to a foolish world. See, the world outside these walls needs to hear that message of hope and redemption. But that message will never get outside these walls as long as we are divided. This was one of my points from last week when I said, do we actually love one another or are we just tolerating one another? So I think maybe we've been so distracted. We've been, maybe there's some been factions, maybe potential divisions among us that we've not been preaching the gospel to the outside world. And when the world hears... Oftentimes, the message from inside these walls, it's not a message of hope and redemption. It's a message of, that church is nuts. You hear what's going on in that church? All the divisions and how they hate each other and there's always fighting. Have you heard, have you heard that? Testimonies of churches like that? So that's what goes outside the walls too often. But what should go out is this message of hope and redemption. We must preach Christ crucified. That is why we are all gathered here this morning, or at least it should be. We're not gathered here because we all think the same way. We're gathered because we think the same way on who Christ is and what he's done for us. The cross is why we gather with our differences and still be a unified body. So we're going to continue to sing this morning about the cross about the foolishness of the cross. Um, and maybe the cross is completely foolish to you. Maybe you're curious about the cross this morning. Maybe you're curious about becoming a Christian. I'm just going to be out here I'm in this little room out to your right. Um, if you want to talk, I'll be right there as we continue to sing this morning. Um, Lord, we uh, come to you this morning thankful for the cross, thankful that you have chosen men and women like us who are broken, who have um, made a mess of things, that you have chosen people like us to take this message to the world. Lord, may we never get over that the cross was plan A, that the church was plan A, 
that as we consider our calling in this room this morning, that you are using a bunch of individuals from different backgrounds, different cultures, to take the gospel to the four corners of the world. (laughs) You're using us. That we are the hope of the world. So if the message of Christ is going to go out, it's got to go through us. And so, Lord, may we not be divided. May any message that leaves this building, may it be about the hope of Christ, not about divisions and factions and hatred. But may it be about love. So, Lord, help us to understand the beauty of the cross. May we sing about these truths this morning. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.